Welcome to Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. We're so glad that you are listening with us today, and we hope that this message is a blessing. Well, a couple of weeks ago, some buddies of mine started talking, and somehow the topic of 90s country music came up. And so we started talking about the old, the old guys, the guys that had all the hits back in the 90s. And so you're Alan Jacksons and people like that. And so Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, before they were on the big screen with movies and TV shows, they were, they were on the big stage singing hits like, I'm an Indian outlaw, you know, half Cherokee and Choctaw. Or, or you have the Don't Take the Girl. Man, that was a heart wrencher. And then you have the wedding classic. It's your love. Just does something to me, right? But another 90s country band had a song in 1992 that went something like, I'm in a hurry to get things done. Oh, I, I rush and rush until I... I don't know how it goes, but something like that. I was hoping someone would... I was really hoping you guys would catch me and fill that in. But all that to say, I'm in a hurry to get things done. 30 years old, yet it still describes our culture today. We are hurried people. I don't know if you're like me, but when I'm on a road trip, I'm always looking for a couple of other cars to get in line with and to follow that are all going a little bit above the speed limit, right? We're in this together. If a cop comes, they can't get us all. If I'm at the grocery store, I mean, if I'm doing the grocery store, I'm looking at people's buggies in front of me and also checking out the cashier. Like, does does, does that person look efficient to make? Because I want to get through fast, like as fast as Possible. I mean, we're, we're, we're hurried people. We're in a rush. But what's happened is in our hurriedness, we find that we're not really ever present. When we're in a hurry, when, when we are in a rush, we're never fully present. And that lack of being fully present is detrimental to relationships, especially if you're dating someone or engaged to someone or if you're married. If you're not fully present, it is detrimental. So how do we find ourselves being present? That's, that's what we're going to see in chapter four of Song of Solomon. So real quick, let me catch you up on what's happened. In chapters one and two, we met this guy and this girl who are in love. And there's back and forth. There is sexual tension between them. And we see that's a good thing. Even when you're not married, God gifts us sexual tension. It's not something you should pray for God to take away because it's a struggle. It's like, no, no, it's, it's something that you want to, to hold on to, but wait for the right time. So multiple times in the song, there's this encouragement to, to not wake up love before it's ready. In other words, save that and wait for marriage. But, but that desire is good. That desire is a gift from God. Well, then in chapter three, we, we see a dynamic change where it's just the woman speaking and she's speaking to an other, a group of other women. And what she's explaining is this dream she had, this nightmare. And in that dream, she compares two different beds. The first bed is one where love is mutual, where there's one man and one woman and they've sought after each other, they found each other and now they're cherishing one another. And that's, that's the way God designed love to be. The other bed is this one where it's kind of like a military conquest where the guy is just on the hunt and once he gets the kill, he, he moves on. And, and so love's not really personal. She's not a participant, she's more of a, Victim, And so there's this contrast. And so now after that dream, those thoughts are still in her mind. I mean, there's fears, there's insecurities that she's wrestling with as the woman. And so in chapter four, he's gonna speak into that. 
So in chapter four, he's going to speak in such a way that calms her fears. Um, he's going to speak in such a way that, that he comforts her heart and that he cultivates a deeper love in this relationship. So let's see what's going on in chapter four. He's speaking, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. So he begins to speak about her beauty and then he compares her eyes to doves. And in speaking about her eyes, it's more than just saying, your blue eyes have got me or your brown eyes have got me. No, he's, he's saying that the depths of who she is. So the, the eyes are a window into the soul. And so he's saying the depths of who you are has me captivated. I don't just love you for your physical beauty. I love you for all of who you are. The whole person is what I'm attracted to. And so he's showing depth here that his love for her is deeper than physical attraction. He continues on. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. And so uh, when we first started this series, Emily Maupin, who you met during the announcements, she showed me a picture where someone crafted the literal image of what a woman would look like if described like this. It's not good. <laughs> it's like, like goat hair and teeth. Like it's, it's not pretty at all. It's like, that's an ugly girl. But all that to say, guys, don't steal the language, right? Don't be like, all right, I'm gonna get this girl. Your hair looks like goats. She's like, what? Like steal the idea, right? The idea here is that he's not just saying you're beautiful. He's detailing how she's beautiful, so it's not just, hey, you're really good looking. It's, let me tell you what about you is beautiful. I'm gonna go into specifics. So he starts to lay out all of the details. Your, your hair is flowing. Your teeth, are, they're white. They're perfectly matched because your cheeks have this reddish tint to them. And I just I wanna eat them. Like he's, he's describing her beauty. And what's happening as he, as he gives details to her beauty, he's disarming her insecurities, so describing her beauty is a way um, that, that whether knowingly or unknowingly, he is disarming some of the insecurities she might carry with her physical appearance. And so he's doing this in a, a beautiful way. And then in, in verse four, when he talks about her neck being the Tower of David, and you'll notice that it has these shields that are being laid down. Well, in chapter three, there were, there were warriors. And these warriors were kind of taking women as a possession. It's like, that woman is mine. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take her, right? Like the woman is the victim, not the participant. But now what we see in contrast to that is the shields are laid down. And so by the shields being laid down, by the men being disarmed, he's, he's saying like, I don't wanna see you as a possession. I'm not trying to control you. I'm trying to delight in you. I'm not trying to control you and just take what I want. I'm trying to pursue you in a way that you feel loved. And so he's describing a different picture than what we saw in chapter three. So to this point, everything has been shoulders up, like shoulders up. And he's taking a lot of time. Remember, he's not in a hurry to get things done, right? So he's, he's taking his time. He's slowly working down from attribute to attribute to attribute, which shows that he's not quick here. He's, he's taking his time, but he does move below the shoulders. Verse five, he says, your two breasts are like two fawns 
twins of gazelle that graze among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountains of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. And so now he sees her breasts. And just a heads up, they're married at this point. And so some commentators would even say this might be the wedding night. So they're married, they're no longer engaged, they're not just dating, and he's, he's, he's seeing her breasts. And here's something that's really interesting that he says, he, like, he compares them to baby deer. So I grew up in Texas, a lot of deer, a lot of deer around. And so if, if you're going around on like a mountain bike or something and you see some deer in the field and there's baby deer, from experience, I can tell you there's two ways of approaching them. You can say, I'm gonna catch that thing and run after it to tackle it. Never works. Like, ah, like the deer's like, I'm out, right? Or you can walk up slowly, like, like, I don't know like, what a deer sounds like. I'm like, come on. <laughs> like, come on. And like, you slowly approach it and you hold your hand out and you're kind of just hoping that like, if I can just pet this thing, like how cool is that? But what you see is there's, there's not just a tackling of the breasts, it's, it's gentleness. And so I think this is, this is important is that like he's respecting her boundaries. We're gonna see that over and over and over that he's respecting her boundaries. He's being gentle. He's, he's taking things slow, right? So he's gently approaching her. He's taking things slow, right? And so, so um, the type of intimacy described here isn't about the man's gratification, but about his wife's pleasure, so we see this gentleness, this slow pace, this not just taking what he wants, but being, being slow and gentle. It shows that he's not concerned about his gratification as much as he's pursuing her pleasure. Look at verse seven. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. So he begins to talk about her beauty again, but what's happening here is imagine this, like as he's talking about her and working his way down from her eyes to her cheeks, to her teeth, to to her breasts is that she's naked in this moment. And so in this culture, women didn't wear yoga pants. Women didn't wear low cut tops. So there, there's there, to this point, like he only has his imagination with what his bride to be would look like. Now he sees her. And so think about it. Like if you're to put yourself in, in a, a woman's shoes or if you are a woman, like there's insecurities there. Like what is, am I what he was hoping for? Like, do I have the right shape? Like, was he, was, is he dissatisfied? Is he happy? So in this moment of being completely vulnerable, completely vulnerable in possibly her insecurities, he assures her, no, like you were beautiful. Like you were more than I could have ever imagined. There's no flaw in you. I think you're perfect. And so he's just, he's just, he's continuing to speak to her in a way that's, that's helping to comfort her fears and to feel safe in his presence. Verse eight, he says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Just take note of that, that phrase, come with me. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. And so what's happening here is when he's talking about these mountains, they're, they're not close. Like Lebanon is not close like Gilead. These are distant places. There's are distant places that he wants to explore. But when he says, would you come with me? What he's doing here is he's asking for her permission. He's saying poetically, I want to explore you. I want to explore places I've never been, but only if you'll let me there. I want to explore places I've never been, but only if you will invite me in. 
And so once again, he's respecting boundaries. He's not assuming anything. He's not like, we're married, I get what I want. Like, you're my wife, come on. Like, he's, he's not taking her. He's respecting her boundaries. He's asking for permission. This is something that's meant to be mutual. The love between a husband and wife is meant to be mutual love. Both are equally participating in this activity. Look at verse nine. He says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. And so all of a sudden, some people are like, did we just go Jerry Springer? Like, like my sister, are we in Arkansas? Um, I was born in Arkansas, so I feel like I can say that, all right? You're like, don't defend me, all right? Well, anyway, it's like my sister, what in the world? Well, let me explain something real quick. In Egyptian poetry, Calling someone, specifically your bride, your sister, wasn't saying this is literally my sister. It was, it was signifying relational closeness. And so what he's saying is we are relationally close. Like I see you as someone that I'm so close to. Like we're, we're next to each other, but we're, we're with each other. And so he's, he's talking about how close he feels to her. Weird for us to hear sister, not for them during the time that this song was written. He says, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. So what's happening in verses 10 to 11 is he begins to describe how the promised land was described in the Old Testament. So when you read like what Israel was longing for in the promised land, they were longing for the land of milk and honey. And so you have Israel wandering around the desert for 40 years being like, I just long to get to this, this paradise, right? That's how he's comparing this weight to be with his bride, to be with his now wife. He's like, I- I'm ready. Like I've been waiting for this moment. I'm ready to come into the promised land, your promised land. Verses 12 and 13, he says, a garden locked is my sister, my bride and a spring locked, a fountain sealed. So, so this garden isn't a place you can just walk into. It says, your shoots are in an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard. And I love that um, so often when you hear English words, like we get the English word for this from the Greek word that, or we get the English word for this from the Latin word that. The word that we get paradise from comes from the Hebrew word used for orchard here. Like this, so he's, he's describing a paradise of her. He says, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and alloys with all the choicest spices. He says, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. And so he continues to describe her as this, this garden, but it's not just any garden. This garden is unparalleled. It has the fruits that people desire from all corners of the known world. It has things that don't normally go together existing in unison. Like this is an unparalleled garden. He's like, I just, I want to come into your garden. I mean, this is, this is sexual imagery and it's, it's pretty blatant here. But what's interesting, right, if you study Hebrew poetry, if you study this song, what happens is there are a hundred and 11 lines of poetry leading up to this point, right? So we just, we just finished the 111th line. That leads us to what we would call the climax of everything the song is about. After the next two verses, there are 111 lines that follow. 
So this is literally saying this is the center of everything. So what's happening to this point is everything in this moment has been looking towards how will she respond to, the, to, the, like, to their marriage being consummated. Like that's like, like everything's, everything's about the marriage and the wedding night and, and like the first night in the hotel after the wedding. Like that's what everything's looking forward to, to this point. Then afterwards, everything's gonna be about the commitment that they sealed in this moment. So how will she respond? He's like, I wanna be in your garden, but your garden is locked. I'm not just gonna take it because we're married. I'm asking for your permission. I'm respecting your boundaries. I want this to be mutual. So how will she respond? So she begins to speak in verse 16. And I know some people's Bible doesn't say this, but she's speaking here. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. So it's interesting, in in Israel, the north wind was a strong wind, but the south wind was gentle. So she's like, I want a man who is strong, but I want a man who's tender. So she's like, come in your strength, come in your tenderness, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Like, I don't know if this is a Jerry Maguire moment where she's like, you had me at dove eyes. Like, 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 like can I get in there? She's like, you had, like, you kept speaking, but I was ready. Or, but either way, like, she, got, she lets them in. She's like, come on in, like, let's do this. And so she, she opens the invitation. They're going to consummate the marriage. And then he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Then others said, eat, friends drink and be drunk with love. And so he fully experiences everything that he had hoped for in this moment, right? So, so what do we take away from this? Like, what's the big takeaway for us? Well, I think what's happening here, and it's, it was true then, it's true now, is that we've become a people who have depersonalized sex. We've depersonalized it. And so what I, what I mean by that is culturally then with King Solomon, but I would say culturally now, what's happened is that we see sex as it's, it's two people, it's two bodies taking part in an action. It's just, it's just two people doing a thing, all right? And it's, it's kind of depersonalizing. It's not seeing someone for the whole person. But what we see here is that there aren't just two people participating in an activity, but this is two souls engaging at the deepest level. So this is, this is two souls engaging at the deepest level. And so we see sex in God's design to be is something that's romantic, something that's gentle, something that's passionate, something that's mutual, something that's deeply satisfying. And so this type of love that, that is finding its climax in the bedroom is something that that type of love isn't just the prelude to marriage. It's not just something that exists until you get to that point. It's, it's the ongoing feature. It, it's the chorus of this love that we'll see continued forward. What we see here is the big takeaway here is that sex is not just two people in an activity, but it's two souls engaging in the deepest way. And so what do we do with this? Well, to experience the fullness of God's gift of sex, what we've seen so far is you have attraction, there's that, that spark. There's that, like, we're, we're physically attracted to each other. Then you have commitment. And I would say you have the covenant of marriage, which means that, that God has designed sex between a husband and a wife in marriage, not outside of it. That's, that's God's design. And then the third thing we saw last week is there's cherishment. 
There's, there's cherishing each other for who you are. And, and so with chapter four, we see that cherishment is aimed at the whole person. So when you cherish someone, you're aiming at all of who they are, not just their physical needs, but you're, you're going deeper to see who they really are. Okay, so here's what I think is happening. For us to truly cherish each other, especially our spouses, we have to get past the physical and to the spiritual. And I know that that might sound really ambiguous. Like, what does it mean to, to cherish someone spiritually? Because we live in a world where it's like, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, but there's spiritual stuff with yoga and all these different things. Like, so like, what, like what am I talking about by spiritual? Let me define it, right? Because I don't want us to get mixed up with what I'm talking about here, Okay. Spiritually speaking, God has created us as whole human beings. Like we, we have bodies, like physical bodies that God cares about. These bodies will be resurrected. But there is the heart, the soul of who we are. And so biblically, when you think about what does it mean to, for the heart, the heart drives what we think, what we feel, and what we do. It's, it's, the, it's our mind. It's our, it's our emotions. It's our actions. And so when we try, to, when we try to, to know the full person, we need to know their hearts. And to know someone's heart is to know what's on their mind, to know what they're feeling, to know what they've been doing. And, and that's knowing the whole person. But for us to do that, we have to be present. But in our hurried lives, we often are absent. So how do we become present people? Like if we want sex in marriage to be all that it was created to be, we have to learn to be present people. And so there's some things that we do outside of marriage. Like maybe you're like today, you're like, Jeff, I'm single. Like this sex stuff is super awkward as is with the pastor. Like, like what in the world? Let me tell you this. Okay. If you're here today and you're not married, let me tell you something. Our culture has began to, to do things backwards, Okay, so what we're seeing here biblically is the pursuit of the whole person before intimacy happens. So what happens in our world? We have a culture where you see someone, you're like, good looking. And what do you do? Either you swipe left or swipe right, I hear. All right, or you have like maybe a DM, like, like, like you do anything tonight? Like, I don't know how guys get girls anymore. I don't know how that works, but like, thank God, I would fail miserably. Like, so Lucy, don't leave me. And so all I had to say, like, let's say, but what happens is people are beginning to hang out in ways that conversation isn't happening. All right. And so that's why the term Netflix and chill is like a great descriptor of how relationships happen, where it's like, okay, like we like each other. I think you're good looking. You think I'm good looking. And so now we're hanging out, but we're hanging out watching a movie. We're hanging out watching TV. We're hanging out in a place that no one's talking. And then what happens is as lights get low, as the sun comes down and it's dark outside, it's way easier to move into physical things. And so what happens is people are attracted to each other, then they're physical with each other. And then because we've depersonalized things like sex, like that's just two people doing a thing. And then after the physical activity has happened, we're like, okay, now are we compatible? Like, well, let's, like, now we need to figure out, like, is this thing gonna work? And the is this thing gonna work through knowing each other is happening after physical activity has gone down. That's backwards. So if you're sitting here and you're like, hey, I'm not married, I'm telling you, you need to practice now learning how to know someone for the whole person, and that will better prepare you for marriage and for your relationships. 
So we all need to learn how to, how to know someone for who they truly are. So learn this now. Like if you're not married, learn to know people, not just to be physical with them, but to get to know their whole heart. So for us to be present people, we need to discipline ourselves to be present. So what does that look like driving down the road? Like driving down the road, maybe you're on 26 and you just stay in the right lane. Like you're like, ah, they're going 55 and it's 60. Like I could get home two minutes quicker if I got in that left lane. Just, just ride it out. Or if you're in the grocery line, like how do you be present in the, like maybe you're sitting there going like, that person's packed. This person, like, all right. But what if you said, like, I'm gonna pick the longest line. Like, this line's really long. I'll stand in it. Like, what are you doing? How many of you never take time to breathe? Like, how many of you, how many of you feel overscheduled, overworked, and overstressed? You're like, I can't breathe. What if God's gift is like the long line? It's like, just, you got nothing to do but sit here. Don't pull out your phone. Just sit in this line and wait it out and breathe. You need to breathe. All of a sudden, like, maybe you just practice breathing. Like, all right, I'm not gonna make this line go any faster. Let's just sit here. Like all of a sudden you're, you're learning to be present. Or what about the way that you eat food? Like there's a way to, to like just chomp down food. Give me the bar, I got too much to do. I don't need a full 30, 45 minute lunch break. I can do this in five minutes because I got work to get done. Like what would it look like if you said, I'm gonna slow down. I'm gonna bring an orange. <laughs> I'm, gonna bring, I'm gonna bring an orange to, to lunch today and you have to peel that thing. You're like, now you gotta wash your hands. It's all in your finger. Like, how does it get in the cuticle? Like, it's like, how does it? So you're like, but you're slowing down and you're actually eating it. And th- like, you're practicing presence. Okay, well, in the same way, when you begin to learn to slow down and not to be hurried, relationally, that looks like, okay, the heart is the what you think, what you feel emotionally and the things that you do. So all of a sudden, it's like, I need to know what's occupying Lucy's mind. It's like, that, that's like, so, so pursuing her whole person is one is to know what's on her mind. I see the wheels turning. Like, what, what are you thinking about? It's like, food. <laughs> I'm doing keto. I'll just think about food all day. Like, all right, you're gonna know that, right? Um, like, 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 what, like, what are you, like, what are you feeling? It's like, it seems like, seems like, seems like, seems like it was a full moon at school today. It's like, yeah, the kids, full moon. They're crazy every full moon. Like, like what do you, like, it, that seems overwhelming. That seems stressful. It's like, it sounds like that was a hard day. Like, to know her emotions. Like, to know what, what she's actually been doing today. Like, to know, like, what are the things that she's done today? She's like, okay, like, I got the kids ready. Like, we signed the paper that said they read the book and practiced for their test. And then, like, I know it doesn't look like I did anything around the house, but I promise you, like, I've been working the whole stinking day. Like, it, there's stuff we're getting done. Like, like, but to know, like, and all of a sudden, like, how, like, the only way to know what's on her mind, what she's feeling, and what she's been doing is through spending time with her and being present. And so relationally, when we're in a position, this is so good with spouses because spouses, what happens, like I tell pre-marriage counseling couples all the time, Lucy and I don't have a lot of like, our marriage was horrible. Like she almost walked out on me. Like, and then we didn't because like he's the pastor that would look bad. Like we don't have those stories, but you know what our rhythm is? It's really easy for us to become ships passing in the night where it's like, we're just trying to get our kids to the next thing. It's like, you got this basketball game, you got that basketball game, you got gymnastics, you got this. Like, and like, all of a sudden, like, we're living together. We're friends with each other. We don't, like, hate each other. But really, our existence is just, we're kind of, then we get to nine o'clock at night and we're like, like, you want to do it? 
<laughs> it's like, like that's it. And like, that, like, like, and so the only way to fight against that passing like ships in the night and just being roommates and not lovers is through learning to be present. And so for us, if you want to have sex in a way that is beautiful as God designed it, it has to be from a position of being fully present with your spouse. So the call, I think, of chapter four for us is to learn to pursue the whole person, to pursue each other spiritually in marriage, and then from that position of knowing each other as the whole person, to let that drive our intimacy. Because think about what happens with that, right? If Lucy's had a hard day, and I can tell it's been stressful, and then I start giving her like a, a, a shoulder rub, what's the motivation behind that? I want her to feel a little bit of release and tension for what she's gone through. It's not, I read this in men's health and this says it'll go good, like later. It's like, like my motivation isn't to get something out of that. It's to, to, to be present in something that she's experiencing, right? Or that, you know what, like maybe we just need to sit down and talk where all of a sudden the, the TV goes off where we don't just go into the rhythm of like, are we caught up on Yellowstone? Like just turn off the TV and like, tell me about your day because she needs to get her words out and to talk and I need to be present and listen. Like you see like all of a sudden the things we do aren't for our gratification, it's for each other's pleasure and each other's deeper needs. But what I love about this, and, and, and I don't want you to miss this at all, is there's a beautiful connection between the love we see in chapter four of Song of Solomon and the love of Jesus. We are called the bride of Christ. Okay, the church is called the bride of Christ. And we know that Jesus will come one day to receive his bride, all right? And so in, in verse seven, she feels completely vulnerable because she's exposed before him, completely vulnerable. When we look at ourselves in our sin, we feel vulnerable before Jesus. How often do we find ourselves going, there's no way God could love me? Like, like the things that I've done, there's no way that Jesus could ever love me. How often do we think about like, like I've just continued to like break this relationship and damage it. Like surely he's gonna walk away. Surely this is the moment where he's like, that's not what I signed up for and he's gonna walk away. But the cross speaks over us a beautiful love. You see, because the cross in the moment of being vulnerable and exposed and feeling like a, a failure or feeling shame or feeling guilt, in those moments, the cross speaks over us. And we know that Jesus says, you are beloved. You are beautiful. You are flawless. Not in our righteousness, but in his righteousness, which he's clothed us with. So the cross speaks over us a greater love. So this love that we're seeing here is meant to point us to the greater love of Jesus. And that's good news. God, thank you for Song of Solomon. We wanna know what it means to be loved by you. And God, for us to have thriving relationships, especially romantic ones, especially in our marriages, God, we, we need to know what it means to be loved by you. We need to experience that depth. And so God, help us to know that. As we move towards a time of response, God, we ask that you would help us to know how deeply loved we are by you and to know how you see us. 
God, we, we feel like maybe you see us as sinners. God, help us to know that you see us flawless, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ, which we are clothed with. And God, let this love penetrate our hearts so deeply that we would be more loving in every relationship that we have. God, your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're interested in learning more about us, you can check out our social media or website. Grace and peace to you.